Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Build Value by Choice podcast show. I am your host, Nana Bonsu. I am the president and CEO of Infinite Horizons Incorporated. You can look me up on our website, www.infhorizons.com forward slash podcast to get more content about the podcast show. Um, today I have with me uh, Laurie Bachman. Uh, Laurie Bachman is a business, she considers herself a business transition shepherd. And she has a firm uh, called Small That Big, where she advises owners on having more valuable, sellable businesses. And as a partner with Stony Hill Advisors, which is an MA firm, mergers and acquisition firm, she guides business owners through a complex process of letting, letting it go when they exit their business. Laurie is the former CEO of a, of a $100 million revenue company with an exit to a Fortune 50 company. With more than 25 years of C-suite and award-winning marketing expertise, she provides actionable perspective to sustain value. She is an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon University. She leads executive workshops with Vistage and also hosts a weekly podcast show called Succession Stories. Welcome to the show, Laurie. Thanks, Nana. It's so great to be with you. Wonderful. Now, I'm so glad I'm talking to you today because you have you have it all. You have marketing expertise. You are a certified value builder, which means you help people accelerate, uh, business owners accelerate the, the value of their business. And then you also um, you know, catch them on the backside, which is the mergers and acquisition, where you help them on the transition side of it. So you cover the whole gamut. I wanted to talk to you about the transition game. What what uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Tom, the late Doctor Stanley, to call the transition game, which is the period between the business owner's career where they're accumulating wealth and then when they retire, right, where they it's their golden years. But there is a there is this gap in the in between that those two periods where business owners tend to fall short. Uh, you know. We've, you know, we've spoken with and we've heard you know, business owners where they do really well in their business, they accumulate a lot of wealth, they cash out, and then they're not ready for the next phase. Like, for instance, what did they do with their life? Their whole identity was tied to their business. Or all of a sudden, they have a sudden influx, uh, influx of cash, but where did they invest that money, right? So that, and that's why you specialize and that's why you help a lot of business owners. So can you talk to us about why, you, especially since you consider yourself a business transition, and I, you know, you are a business transition sherpa, but just help us understand what that is, what that's about. Absolutely, I think the best way to sum it up is from transition to transaction, and I don't presume that the transaction is going to be a sale to a third party. It's very common, but that transaction, whether it's to your related parties like your family or to parties that you know, such as your management team, that's still a transaction. It's important to have goals around that as an individual and taking that step, the steps that's required to really plan ahead. Because when you have time on your side, you ultimately have more options. So as 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 you say, when I call myself a business transition Sherpa, what does that translate to? I think it's about being a guide. I don't come forward to work with clients because I have all the answers. I come forward to engage and and work together with clients and partner with them because I have a process. And I think it's a good analogy with a Sherpa. If you go mountain climbing and you have somebody helping you with the guide, you know, as a guide and, and getting up that hill, it's about having the right tools. 
It's about having the right path. And ultimately, when you hit some rocks and trip a little bit, to pick yourself back up and, and get back on that path and keep going. And so that's that's why I've come up with that saying. And hopefully it resonates with the audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, typically, now we know that the statistics about we're in a period of time, a lot of baby boomers are aging. They're looking to retire. Um, we also have, based on what happened the last two years with the pandemic, that a lot of uh, you know a lot of you know businesses either got wiped out or their business value went down significantly, and they're not looking forward to another uh, pandemic to wipe out whatever remains of their uh, their wealth. Um, so a lot of business owners are looking to retire in the next five to ten years. Why do you think it's a good idea for them to start talking to a sherpa like you as soon as possible? Because a lot of times you know business owners they're so caught up in their day to day that. They think of retiring one day and they think, oh, I just need to go talk to an MA broker or an advisor and, and you know, just get help to retire in like 12 months, which may be too soon or just too short a period of time. That that's probably true. There's some element with any business, I think, about risk and I think about transferability. And if a business owner says, I'm I'm ready now, that doesn't mean that the business is sell ready. That, that quote is from a, a gentleman, David Weibel, who was on my podcast, and we had a great conversation about that. And he sold his business. And at the time he sold, he was sell ready, but that took him. And he and I think he sold, I would say, when he's in his 40s and he's now onto his second company. So for him, that sell ready took about 10 years. For others who, as you said, based on demographics, when they're in their 60s, might be ready to sell and be facing health issues. They might be facing any you know family crisis. They might be just really tired. There's all kinds of reasons and motivations why a business owner is ready to sell. But again, I come back to, is that business sell ready? So if we focus on the risks in the business, the, in- <clears throat> the inherent value in the business, and address those things when we have time, chances are it won't impact your value. But if you have a lot of risks, it's not a very transferable business. There's all kinds of reasons what would make that business more or less transferable to the next owner. There's all kinds of value drivers. And then as a value builder advisor, you and I could talk more deeply about that on this episode. But at at its core, when you have more time on your side, you have more time to generate more options and having more options can create more value to you as the owner. And that doesn't mean necessarily finding the highest bidder. It might mean finding the right fit. And that offer you get might not be the highest offer, but it's the right fit for you. And that decision you make is the right decision at that time because you've had the ability to choose a path and look at different paths over time. Great. So, um, Speaking of the options, because that's one of the things a lot of times uh, business owners may not be aware of their options. There may be a lot of times they may be thinking of only two, uh, either passing it down to their subsequent generation or um, or maybe selling outright if they don't feel like their kids are interested in in, the, in their business. But there are so many other options. Um, could you like, you know, elaborate a little bit on the other options besides just either selling or passing it down to your kids? And just also this concept of you know, the baton exchange, right? Which is that uh, if they're looking to sell, they have their finished point, 
but somebody is also going to have to take the baton and run it, whoever the acquirer of that business is. And they need to see, and you talked about risk, they need to see uh, there are certain things that they look for if they want to pay the premium that the business owner who's looking to sell may, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, to get the value that they're looking, they, they, they have a number in their mind, but they, in order for them to get that number, they need to make sure they check certain boxes so that the buyer uh, will, you know, give them the, the, the money that they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think at this at the core, though, at the start is what goals does the business owner have for a transition? What personal goals do they have? What business goals do they have? And what financial goals do they have? And why that's so important to articulate is because based on those goals, you can create different exit options. So for example, if one of the goals is, I really want to have a lasting legacy in my community, then that means I'm intending for succession with my family, that will lead you down a very different path than a related option, which could be I'm intending to stay, you know, the legacy, I want my legacy to continue in my community. And I want it to continue with my stakeholders that know the business well, which might lead you to a management buyout. It could also lead you down the path of some combination of those things, which could a management buyout could be um, sponsored by a private equity group. And they want the management team to stay on. So that'd be more, you know, we we'll call it a leverage buyout. Um, with private equity group involved for funding. The other option that's out there for companies of a significant size who qualify for the uh, U- United States government program, which is known by the acronym an ESOP, which is essentially um, a stock option program. Um, it's a mechanism for the business to be uh, financed with bank debt and then repaid over time, but to the employees, they can earn shares in the business. And so for the family that goes through an ESOP option, they can, they can over time potentially get a second bite at the apple when the next generation might have an exit of their own. So they can maintain the company's, um, the company's association with the family from a financial standpoint, and again, finance it for their future. So there's all kinds of different mechanisms. Another mechanism would be Let's say their goal is, I want to continue to lead my business. I just want to take some chips off the table, diversify my portfolio because my largest uh, asset is my business. It's 70% or more of my net worth. So I want to recapitalize and I want to take in a minority investor. Or I want to take in a majority investor. Maybe I just want a smaller share. So do you have 50% or more of the business? Um, the, The company that I used to work for, was a third generation company, but they had a private equity group that had done that. So they had recapitalized and gotten some investment. There's there's pros and cons to all of that, of course. If you're used to uh, not having a board <laughs> or outside uh, you know, financiers looking at your business, um, you might find that uh, the change pretty significant. But on the positive side, if you're looking to tap into a whole other access network to investors and potentially have a third party exit, um, to either, uh, we'll talk about this now. It's probably a good time. There's different types of investors. So who you exit to, we're we're on that thread. So I'll just I'll just mm-hmm. shape it yep. out a little yep. bit more. Mm-hmm. First category I'll call strategic buyers. The second category is financial buyers, and the third ca- category are what we call related buyers. 
So in beginning my commentary, I started out talking about related buyers, related mm-hmm. buyers being literally related to you or management and in internal. So it's more of an internal stakeholder kind of kind of options. And ESOP, again, falls underneath that. In the strategic buyers, these tend to be corporations. They can be, like it doesn't have to be a C-corp, it can be an S-corp or an LLC, but it's a corporation type of mentality where another a company is going to acquire you because there's a strategic reason to do so. Perhaps it's a competitor, perhaps it's a uh, someone in your value chain, whether you're vertically integrated or you want to, you're horizontally horizontally integrated. There's some there's some reason for that acquisition. They're going to gobble up market share whatever it is, aqua hire, it's a strategic play. Mm-hmm. The, this third category then is the financial buyers. And those tend to be the ones we hear about a lot. Uh, private equity markets, of course, really, really frothy still. Sh- one of the highest years ever in 2021, very, very popular um, asset class because private equity groups are looking to either create a what we call an anchor investment where they'll where they'll invest in a core asset. And then what they do are there's these follow-on investing that they call bolt-ons. And so if it's a bolt-on, a smaller deal, it can look a little bit more financially like a strategic um, might investor might, right? Because they're tucking it in their strategic reason. So you might hear of larger deals as these anchors and then bolt-ons. But anyway, Private equity groups tend to be that that third, and and they get they get a lot of a lot of press. So the strategic buyers tend to pay more than financial uh, buyers. Why um, why should a, a business owner you know the, naturally everybody wants to get more for their money, therefore they want a strategic buyer. But why should a, a business owner prepare their business as if uh, they're going to be acquired by that is if they plan to sell. Or they may not even be in your hands. Circumstances may force the, the sale of their business. Um, so I'm, I'll actually, the theme, the umbrella I want to kind of um, stay on is also the uh, under the uh, mindset kind of thing. Because a lot of times, the beliefs and the mindset is sometimes the block that prevents people to plan you know, properly. Um, so why should they uh, prepare their business as if they're going to be acquired by a, a private equity? even if they end up being acquired by uh, a strategic advisor. And also, why should they, it's a twofer, and they also, why should they, even if they don't plan to sell, why should they, um, you know, um, set up your business uh, based on some of the drivers of value as if they were going to sell? So to boil your question down, I guess the themes around it would be the market dynamics, the value drivers, and the risks associated so kind of key questions underneath that, like you're saying, are, you know, what drives the value of my business? And based on who's interested in buying it, if I understand what their value drivers are, I can work backwards to understand which aspects of the business might yield more value to me and more return on my hard work. And that's not an easy thing to try to figure out. But an example of that would be this friend of mine, David Weibel, who I mentioned earlier, he had he was CEO and co-founder of a business called Industry Weapon. And they had a business model that was kind of like one-time revenue. So project-based, one-time revenue type of it was a technical play, but again, it was not recurring revenue. It was eventually more of a recurring they changed to more of a recurring revenue model. 
after David, with over a period of six years, he would reach out to strategics. He had conversations with private equity, and he did this all on his own. He didn't have an advisor whispering in his ear like you and I would, Nana. I, I just think I love his story because he intuitively knew he mm-hmm. needed to understand what value drivers were most important to the types of buyers he might sell to. And he didn't know for sure which option he was going to go down. But inherently, what David was doing by by having those conversations was absolutely learning, right? Mm -hmm. Creating and fostering those relationships so that at the time he felt more sell-ready, he had a a more sell-ready business. And he worked backwards. So what he heard from those conversations was that his revenue and his growth was interesting, but it wasn't creating value the way that he they those investors would have liked to see. And so that showed David very clearly the business needed to change towards a re- recurring revenue model type of type of business. And they did do that. It wasn't didn't end up being 100%, but it ended up being a definite mind shift, a process shift and packaging their services in a way where they eventually got there. And I think they got to maybe 60% or 70%. So it was pretty significant change. And then they ultimately did sell and they got a much, much higher valuation. And uh, he credits that six-year process of having these conversations to understand what really drives the value of his business and work backwards. Yeah, now good for him. And he probably could have cut that time in half if, if he had to work with an advisor, right? Like, <laughs> That's right. He probably could have. <laughs> but it took the time for them to really change too, because it had right. it meant a lot of changes yeah. in their business model. And the mentality was really important. He he coined this term and he he allows me to use it. I think it's a great term. He calls it value creation revenue, VCR. And using that language internally helped the people see, oh, it's so difficult, right? And imagine, Nana, you're a business owner. You've got people with checkbooks in front of you or Venmo or whatever it is saying, here's cash. Please take my money. I want you to do this for me. And they were turning down those those opportunities, whereas in the past, they would have said, yes, that's very, very hard to do that. But companies that really stay disciplined and focused and prioritize value creation revenue are the ones who are going to really be seeing that that payback in the future. No, that's that's uh, that's one of a kind because it's it's usually very rare to stay that disciplined if you don't have a sherpa or like an advisor on your shoulder just kind of trying to encourage you through the process and why you need to stay the course and all of that stuff. So that's uh that's that's quite a story. Um, I want to just for the uh, for the purposes of uh, you know business owners who may be on the other side of it. You've been on the side of being acquired. Uh, what was that experience like? It was very intense at times, very exciting, somewhat stressful. And for me, I was very optimistic. So those were my attitudes and how I looked at it. I don't know that everyone had the same frame of mind, to be honest with you, but I was one of the core management team that was part of the due diligence process. And from from our end, we needed to provide information. And also I was one of the core management team members that this other company was looking at taking on, right? They they saw all of us as an asset and wanted to get to know us before the deal closed. So at the right time, there were groups of people who, again, this is a quite sizable company. It sold for $1.4 billion. So um, there was my business unit and about six others. 
And so the the buying company wanted to get to know the key leaders. They wanted to get to know our financials. And as you can imagine, all the things that go into buying a company when you're talking about um, such a comprehensive deal. And at, at the stressful points were when they needed to meet us and we were presenting. And I knew not only was I sort of selling my business and what my business is all about, but I was also selling myself because I wanted this to work out and, and ultimately join this, be part of this other organization. So it wasn't an aqua hire type of type of situation where sometimes companies buy, you know, you see this a lot of times now in the tech sector mm-hmm. where perhaps a tech gets melded into other tech and that's already present in the company. And they just really want the teammates. They want the engineers. And so we call that kind of this aqua hire. For this, for this situation, it was strategic. It, it filled a little puzzle piece in the offering that the larger company you know, didn't quite have. And so it was very, very strategic from that point, standpoint. So they wanted the management team to come with and, and, and be part of it. And so that part was you know, very, very exciting. And then also, you know, you get the, you get the butterflies of, oh, wow, I hope this really works out well. And it's the beginning of something very new. And so there is a lot of uncertainty. And of course, my teammates, everybody was nervous once the deal was finally announced, then there's a lot of internal um, uh, questions and answers. And what does this mean for me? As soon as, as soon as it becomes public information, um, which at the time, you know, this is a publicly traded company. So we were not allowed to discuss it broadly at all. And it was a very, very small group that knew about it until the deal is done. It's not done. And for us, you also were dealing with the public market. So we had to be very, very careful. And so once it was announced, then, uh, then immediately it switches into communications and, you know, large group meetings, small group meetings. And so then there's that side of it, which is, oh, I want to make sure my people feel good about it. Mm-hmm. And everybody goes into the mode of it's just natural. What what's this mean for me? Mm-hmm. Everybody takes it from big picture to what does this mean for me? And so there's just a lot of time spent in that initial phase of getting people, you know, uh, comfort with it. And not only is it internal, then it's all this. So the external stakeholders, all of our clients, we did strategic calls um, pretty much when the announcement was going out slash right before it was going out. We placed calls at the very high levels of some of our clients uh, because our clients had, um, we, we were working pretty much at the C-level in many of these companies. And so we just didn't want any big surprises. And of course, you're saying, look, everything's going to stay on track and, and helping that they're on board with it. So there's this phase prior to the deal. There's a couple of phases here about Nana, right? The big mm-hmm. picture is, look, there's a playbook that when you're getting acquired, especially by a global company, They've done this many times over and they were leading it and you're, you're going through it and you're staying on their timeline. We had a quarterback who did a fantastic job on our end of getting everybody on our end. And you can add all this data. We have a data room. We have all these um, spreadsheets we're creating and all this information that needs to go to the acquirer in a timely fashion. So that's the key part of what we say due diligence. What does that really mean? Well, there's a giant checklist that someone's managing on the buy side and, and, and on the sell side, and that has to be done uh, thoroughly, accurately, you know, and on time and to keep the deal moving. And then, of course, there's all these other conversations happening in a very small back room, you know, Zoom setting <laughs> if it's remote to really get to hone in on, well, what's, what are the deal details and really important to have super... Uh, collaborative process around that with your, and then you can imagine if we translate this to a small company, this it's still the same concept where you want to have 
deal advisors around you that can advise on the tax side, on the legal documents. So now as I, as I work with small business owners, when they're looking to sell, I take from my experience and I can relate to it. It is stressful. It is emotional and there's anxiety. And so that's why it's good to have someone who's been through the process, who knows the process. You know, I'm a, I have a designation for as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor. And I think that there's a really good reason why you and I are in the field that we're in to work with business owners and help them because if they're on their own, it's it's what I'm saying times 100. It's like, you really hope you're doing the right thing. You're going to have regrets. How am I doing the right thing? And just a lot of anxiety. So to take, and also to help take the emotion out of it too yeah. and keep the process moving along. But it's a very, it can be very complex. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's already tough enough, lonely as it is at the top, uh, you know, in your day-to-day, you know, in your career as a wealth accumulator, but to, you know, to go into the transition period or whatever, you know, because, you know, like an example that we all know about, just you know, Captain Sally thing, you know, you only get one chance to to land the plane on the Hudson. And if, if you haven't gone through it before, you know, you haven't practiced it. So, Having an advisor who's either been through it or worked with people who've been through it will help you in a safer landing and you know, you know, fewer regrets. Um, because uh, as you know, the three quarters of owners tend to have a regret, um, you know, one year after the exit. So um, that's you know that's why it's so important to work with an advisor. You talked about you know risk and and then uh, one of the value drivers that you talked about was uh, you talked about recurring revenue. What are some of the other drivers that are important? And maybe if you, if you can also share with us you know, your process, because you have a process that goes you know, about you know, looking at the market and then just kind of taking them through um, to a place where they can land properly. So if you can kind of share with our audience just what your unique process is and you know, how they can find out more about it. Yeah, absolutely. I've come up with a workshop format as a way to get started with clients because it seems so confusing. Where do you start? There's so many things to talk about. And I've boiled it down into a workshop where we go through four key areas. So I'll talk through those four. And of course, if people want to learn more, they're welcome to follow up with me after they hear this podcast, Anna. And uh, we, we can talk about that. Um, the first section of time, I want to get to know them. So even before the workshop, I'll have a bunch of questions for them and talk to them about their business. I really want to understand who they are and, and what the business does and a little bit more about uh, the history and what value they're providing to their constituents. I think that's really important. So even before the workshop, that's kind of a stage zero. So where does the workshop start? It starts with hopes and dreams. We'll talk about what personal business and financial goals they have for their transition. And there are some assessment tools that I'll ask them to complete ahead of time so that when we meet, you know, again, I have a good background of some of the things that they're thinking about and some of the financials about their company. Also related in this first part is how much do they need to financially to achieve their goals after they exit. Now they might have a financial advisor that they've been working with and they already know their number of what that number is. Let's say I'm making this up. I need $10 million. I want to retire at 60 
And I need $10 million to do that and live the lifestyle I want to live because I'm planning to live to 100. So I've got 40 years and I want to travel and I want to have all these amazing experiences. Okay, you need 10 million. All right, great. So there's that aspect of the hopes and dreams conversation on the personal side too, kind of like I said earlier about their community and their stakeholders and what's important to them. And then on the business readiness side is, well, where are they today? So which leads into the next next section, which I call the market assessment. And for a additional fee beyond the workshop fee, but I give them a discount on it, um, is I'll do a business valuation. So not only will they get um, these assessments on where is their business today, what you know from a readiness standpoint, and looking at the eight value drivers that value builder assesses them on, um, I'll also give them a market assessment. Uh, with comps uh, from their industry code. So they can see how they compare. And we back into that number again. We say, well, what's your business worth today based on this market assessment and on these comps? And do we have a gap? Do we have a gap based on your exit goal? So if you want to sell, eventually have the net worth of 10 million and your market assessment comes back and says, well, you need, you know, your business is worth four. And right now your nest egg is, is, is five. Well, we have a gap there. So we want to have your, your business worth 5 million instead of 4 million so that you can get to your 10. Ah, okay. All right. I need a 20% jump. How am I going to do that? Which leads to our next section, which is the market dynamics, value drivers, and risks. And in this section, we talk about those elements that are really driving the business, how we're assessing them today as a baseline on these eight drivers and comparing them to their industry peers. And they can see from the different categories, well, one of them is going to be based on size, the size of the business. One's based on the growth potential. One is based on recurring revenue model. Uh, what differentiation do they have in the market? What's their relationships with customers and their customer churn and retention? And ultimately, how transferable that business is, what risks are they facing with themselves, their employees, their suppliers, uh, and their customers? Do they have any concentration risk anywhere? And then the last one we call the hub and spoke, which is how much that business is set up to succeed and scale without you. So one of the key questions is, what will happen to your business if you weren't there for 90 days? And then overarching all of this, Nana, is their time horizon. You know, do they... We ask the question very plainly, well, what, what's your timeline to exit? And if they say one year, that's a very different situation than if they say 10 years. So all of that in these three sections kind of intertwines very, very nicely. And so one of the key questions that comes out of this third area is I've learned what maybe drives the value of my business and where I might have some gaps and risks. And then what might I do to increase the value? So easier said than done. Now it gets into the last section, which is action planning. And can we do some action planning in this workshop so they leave with tangible next steps? As a follow-on to that, I also offer strategic planning. And what's really nice for this is that they can have a business strategic plan where they involve their team and their key leaders to work on, let's say, if it's value creation revenue and creating recurring revenue model and what do we need to really do to differentiate. So we go from just these big ideas to operationalizing. And I think it's a wonderful way to then work with folks as an advisor on a monthly basis, and then also get to know their team 
and make sure that they're all working towards the same big picture objective. And by the way, the business owner doesn't need to tell them, hey, I'm looking to sell in 10 years. They don't need to. It's just good economic sense to build the business that has more value. So that's the that's the process in a nutshell. Okay, great. And uh, if people want to follow up with you or follow your work, how can they do that? Well, there's two ways. If they want to set up time with me right now, I welcome them to do that. They can go to meetlauriebarkman.com and there's a page to schedule right there on my calendar. So it's really easy. And my name is L-A-U-R-I-E and my last name is Barkman, B-A-R-K-M-A-N. So hopefully they can find that pretty easily, meetlauriebarkman.com. They can also go to LinkedIn and connect with me there. Hit up, hit me up on LinkedIn. I love to connect. Let me know that you heard me on 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 Nana's show because I think that'd be great feedback, you know, for you and me. And then also my website is smalldotbig.com, and they can get a, a good general's perspective about me and what my services are and how I work with business owners to help them capture value and transition with success. Well, that's great. And uh, we're going to have all that information on the show's uh, website as well. So, uh, you know, people can get all that information in case they're driving and don't have the opportunity to <laughs> write it down. So, um, so yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you again. I think, I think um, obviously business transition is such a big opportunity uh, for, uh, for the community of business owners. And, you know, you're in the right spot and you're the right person to, to help people, um, you know, get through it because it's, it's a very tough, um, tough deal and a very emotional one. And having a Sherpa like you to help them will definitely be a good one. So, uh, Laurie, thank you for stopping by. I uh, really appreciate your time and looking, look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thanks, Nana. Thanks for having me. 